welcome um, to sit in on our children's worship. It's a great, um, great curriculum, um, great time those kids have. Our, our goal for our children, um, whether they're in the nursery or sitting in here or in children's worship or making gingerbread houses on Saturday, whatever it is, um, is that they would grow up to be mature, Jesus-loving adults. Um, and our goal in doing those ministries, wherever they are, is to help you as parents. We want to come alongside um, and help you disciple your children um, and be a help and encouragement to you, especially as parents and not just um, to, to your kids. And so hope that, hope that goal's met. That's what we're after. Um, we are in the third sermon of our Advent series. We're in Matthew chapter 1, and we've been just taking this chunk of Scripture and I'm looking at four different aspects of it. And so if you want to turn to Matthew chapter 1 this morning, um, we'll be focusing in verses kind of 20 to 22, even though I'll read 18, um, all the way to 25. Uh, my encouragement to you is that you would, you would take a moment um, to consider the story of Jesus' birth fresh and new. Um, as I'll say later in the sermon, Christmas and Easter can be some of the most dangerous times um, for people who reflect on the Bible because we've heard it so many times. Um, because it's the same. Um, I somewhat gets, um, gets difficult for me around Christmas and Easter. You'd think it'd be easier for a pastor because we just have this file folder of stuff or just repeat and hope nobody notices this is the same stuff every year. Um, it's really difficult because it's, it's, it's material I'm very familiar with. It's material you're very familiar with. Um, and familiarity can um, breed apathy. And there's some amazing things in the Christmas and Easter um, narratives. They're not just fictional stories, the, the true narrative of the life of our Lord. And so I want to encourage you just for the first time to think through what it might be like to hear this story for the first time, to consider it. What would it be like to be in a church in um, the first century AD um, and somebody say, hey, there's this, there's this gospel from this guy, Matthew. Um, we're going to read it together as a church. What would it be like for you to hear Matthew for the first time and reflect on some of those things? One of the things you'd probably notice, especially in this passage, is the names um, that come together. And I know many of you, I know it was even talked about the tea yesterday, the ladies' tea. Um, it's a good study to go through the Bible and look at the names um, about God. Who does God say um, that he is and about himself? And God uses his names to describe his character. And there are a bunch of names. And as the people of God were looking forward to the Messiah who would come, there were a lot of names that were applied to him. You know, one of the most famous is Christ. And so Christ is not Jesus' last name. Um, it, is, um, it means king. It means the anointed one. It tells who he is and what he accomplished. And so what we're going to look at this morning is two names that are applied to him in this passage. And the first is uh, more famous than the second. The first is Jesus, which we looked at last week, which means savior, um, literally. It is the, the Greek translation from the Jewish or Aramaic um, Joshua or Yeshua, which means um, God saves, Yahshua. And, um, and so that's Jesus' name. It was given to him by the angel through his dad. And the second name you'll see is Emmanuel, um, which means or literally um, God with us. And so a man and El is the, the Hebrew name for God. And so that was one of the names mentioned in the Old Testament in Isaiah to look for of who the Messiah would be. And so we're going to see those things come together um, this morning. And so as we look at that, Jesus and Emmanuel... Um, we're going to look at the second part of the sermon. What happens if we maybe didn't have one of those? We lost one of those? If, if, if this, this baby was only Jesus or only Emmanuel? And then we'll close by just looking at um, some, some ways that should affect your life. And so um, I will read to us here in Matthew. I'll start in verse 18 and I'll move all the way down to 25. And so, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. 
When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to his son, and he called his name Jesus. Since this is the word of our God, why don't we pray this morning before we consider it. Father, we're so thankful for this, your word, that we can be in this day and know that we have your truth preserved, not only from generations past, not only for us, but a truth that we be preserved until the returning of your son, Jesus. Um, now we see your Bible and we see Christ in it as in a mirror dimly lit, but one day we will see him as he is, will be transformed into his image from one degree of glory to the next. We long for that day. And we love these Sundays together to study your word and to get a glimpse, a sighting of Christ. We would worship him this morning. And so we need your help. Be with us, Lord, we pray in Christ. Amen. So let's first, let's look at what Matthew's doing here in this passage. If you want to look here um, in your own text, you'll see in your own Bibles, he's talking in verses 21, 22, and 23 um, about this naming. He retells um, the story that he had heard from um, eyewitnesses, maybe Joseph and Mary, maybe Joseph himself was able to meet with Matthew, or maybe Mary told the story of Joseph meeting with the angel, and um, as God was prone to do when the birth of a significant child within the history of redemption would happen, God would give that child a special name. Um, did the same thing with John the Baptist just a few chapters before um, you look in, in Luke, before the birth of Jesus. And so God had said, as we looked at last week, listen, Joseph, you're not going to get to name him Joseph Jr. You're not going to get to do whatever else you might like to do. You're going to name this kid Jesus. And the reason you're going to name him Jesus is because Jesus means God saves. And not just in general, but this kid is going to save his people from their sins. Uh, if you want to hear more about that and reflect on that, you can go look. Um, you can look at the sermon from last week um, we posted online. And so we see that. Now, the odd thing is that Matthew, writing the gospel, will follow that up. And he will say, just as it's written, and he'll quote Isaiah. Um, and he'll say you know, in that passage, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. And we might say, Matthew, you're wrong. They didn't call his name, Ma they didn't call his name Emmanuel. They called his name Jesus. It seems that somehow Matthew has gotten this wrong. In fact, most of you probably do not often call Jesus by Emmanuel. Maybe around Christmas time when you have to sing the carols, you'll call him Emmanuel. But what is Matthew doing here? He says, just as it's written. And the way that it's written is almost exact. You shall call his name. His name shall be called from Isaiah. And here you see him being called Emmanuel. One is Jesus. It's a transactional truth. God saves. It's what this child would do for his people. It's how he would serve his people. The other is a relational word, that he would be God with us. It's, it's how that relationship would go. There would be a relationship of presence and care and concern. And what Matthew's doing is he's saying that Jesus is both, and that he has to be both. He has to be both Savior 
and he has to be God with us. That the way we know God is both transactionally, what he has accomplished for us, what benefits he's given us, what we've received from him in transactional sense as Savior, but we also know him as Emmanuel, that our God is personal, that he's with us, that he knows us, that he is our father, that Jesus is our friend, that the Holy Spirit is our guide and our advocate. And so this morning, I just want you to reflect on that. And this is why I want you to reflect on it, because I think that the way you look at life and relationships is that you probably default to one side or the other based on your personality and your upbringing. Some of you, when you approach a friendship or a marriage or a job, what you think is, this is what I'm going to do. These are the things I'm going to accomplish. This is what I'm going to provide for the people that are in relationship for me. It's a very transactional way to look at things. The other side, you think, I really just want to be with them. I want to let them know that I love them. I want to sit with them and just experience and do life and all those words that we have um, for doing that kind of relationship. And it's obviously you want both of those things. But I think for most of you, not only do you default to one side or other in the way you live your life and your relationships, but in the way you see God. So for some of you, God is very transactional. When I say, tell me something about God. He saved me from my sins. He gave me salvation. He redeemed me. He provided heaven for me. Very transactional. For some of you, tell me about God. He's always with me. He's my father. He cares for me. He's close to me. Very relational. And so we're going to look at that this morning. That's where we're going. Maybe now you've tagged in your mind, this is, the, this is the side I fall off on, and this is the way that I view God. Usually if the way that you deal with relationships yourself is the way you also um, deal with God. And at least if we're looking at Matthew here, Jesus has to be both Jesus' Savior and Emmanuel, God with us. Good? So that's where we're going this morning. Um, where we'll end up um, at the end is showing you how that affects you and what implications that has for you. And the way we're going to do it, a little mind experiment, a little thought process we'll go through, and this is what we'll do. We're going to think through, what would it be like to be a Christian if Jesus was only Savior and not God with us? And we're going to flip it around. What would it be like to be a Christian if Jesus was only God with us and not Savior? Good? Good. Briefly, we'll dive into those. So the first one we'll hit is what if Jesus was only Savior and not God with us? What if all you knew of Christianity was transactional, of the benefits that you would receive? The first thing that you would find was that you would start to deal in Christianity as if it was a commodity. And so you would come to the Bible, you would come to the church as how can I get the things that I need from the church or from God because I'm experiencing real need? How can I get peace? How can I get the knowledge that on my death that I'm going to be able to go to God and, and be with him in peace? How can I have healthy relationships? How can I find a, an environment and a community that I'm in? Um, we were talking about healthy expectations in our new members class this morning. And one of the things I warned them about is one of the reasons that people often join churches is because their, their lives are falling apart. And they think if they join the church, then it will help whatever crisis that they're in. And it just doesn't happen that way. You can't come to the church and, and receive church as a commodity that somehow is going to fix your problem. It's not a, a medication. And people can approach God the same way. So they don't necessarily want God. They want his stuff. They don't necessarily want the Father. They want the things the Father has. 
And you see that expressed sometimes in the way that people talk about heaven. So when people talk about when someone's died or think about their own death, what are you excited about heaven? I'm excited about seeing all my loved ones. I'm excited about the streets paved with gold. I remember being in, in one funeral in the backwoods of Mississippi um, once. It was a horrible funeral, as funerals go. Um, and the guy was preaching and talking about heaven. And he said his view of heaven was that he would be able to sit under a tree in a rocking chair in the shade for a thousand years and just shit, sit, in the, sit, sit in the shade. I didn't say that. <laughs> didn't say that. Never happened. We're going to edit that out of the... Um, he's going to sit in the shade, um, and rock away the years. Um, glad we could experience that together. That's, um, that's good. Um, that'll be a story I tell. Um, so, coming back together. Um, and so he described heaven as being this long vacation, seeing his loved ones for thousands of years, and he met, never mentioned God. Um, and if your view of heaven is loved ones and the shade and streets paved with gold, um, then I would wager you're looking at God transactionally. He's going to give to you this really nice experience. You really don't want to be with him or want him. You just want some good stuff. You know when you die, you go to a good place. It's a very transactional way to look at God. Um, the second thing that it might do is that it gives you a very non-relational salvation. And so within our culture, who the heroes are um, are people like, let's give an illustration of firefighters. Um, firefighters and EMTs. Uh, we have a few in a congregation for whom I'm very thankful. And so let's say that you have a medical emergency or your home is on fire. Um, and an EMT or a firefighter comes to your house and, um, and he or she becomes your very real savior. You know, maybe it's, it's even death that's on the line. And they save you from death. They carry you out of the house. They hook up the, the paddles and shock you back to life, whatever it is. You have received salvation now, do you expect to see them in all your family meals? Do you expect to have coffee with them during the week? Do you expect to email them and know them? You might know them after that. But there's not an expectation that that salvation is going to create a relationship. In fact, I think probably the firefighters and EMTs would be very thankful, but a little weirded out if you began to kind of stalk them afterwards and <laughs> by the fact that they saved you, that there's somehow this ongoing, significant, close relationship. And a lot of us can view God that way. He saved me, but I really don't have much expectation for after that that there's going to be any relationship with him. The, the last thing um, of, of three, of the first thing, what would it be like if Jesus was Savior and, and not God with us, is it would give you a very impermanent salvation. And many of you experience that, and so a lot of times what can happen is people can remember a very powerful experience of salvation. And some of you have those stories where your conversion was a moment of an intense weight of feeling your sin and God's judgment and you trusting in him for salvation and, and feeling the warmth and happiness and encouragement of knowing that you believe on him by faith and receive new life and having new life in Christ. And then after that, though, as all Christians do, you experience the ups and downs of Christian life. You experience the onset of sin. And if salvation was a transaction that happened a long time ago, and I'm now facing with sin and doubt and all kinds of things now, you start to worry, was, was that real? Was that salvation enough? Because it happened a long time ago, and now I'm here, and I have reason to doubt whether that's true, which is why a lot of times you'll see in evangelical churches, you'll see people get baptized five times, 
And you see people, you know, every once in a while, if you're feeling the hand of God upon you, come on forward and we can do it again. And that kind of impermanence, when Jesus is only transactional and not relational, when it's only what he's done and not who he is with you, it's a very, 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 very shaky relationship with God. A lot of up and downs, a lot of doubts of your own salvation. And I would, I would, I would commend to you that that is what nominal evangelical Christianity is most like in our culture. So somebody who professes to be an evangelical Christian in Culpeper, who's nominal, struggling, we might say. Who knows where they are um, with the Lord? They, they think they're a Christian. They profess they're a Christian. There's some things that are question marks in their life. Um, for most of them, they're going to have a very transactional relationship um, with God and not think much about God's nearness. And so for many of you, if I were to say, not just what was your conversion, but what was the significant moment of growth in your life as a Christian? Many of you grew up that way, and you can think back on a book or an experience in college or a parachurch ministry where all of a sudden you realized that God was with you and near you and was very relational. And that made a big impact on you. Um, it wasn't necessarily a second conversion. It's just you had, you had seen God as transactional savior and then those other truths came in to help bring um, robust nature to um, your faith. So you can see we lead to different problems if we only have a transactional view of God. Now, if we flip it around, what if Jesus was only Emmanuel, God with us, and not Savior? Well, that's kind of where our culture is today. You know, I want Jesus to be the one who meets me in the coffee shop. And he's always with me and loves me and accepts me, and um, I have him everywhere I go. And there's this just vague sense of nice, fuzzy, good, benevolent, deific, godness. Even people who are not Christians, just there's this presence around me. Um, I just feel the goodness around me. It's, it's the language. It's very common to our culture. Um, where are the problems with that? The first problem as you come to Christianity, if that's your view of the Christian God, is terrifying judgment. Terrifying judgment. And you wouldn't think that, because usually we think when people are with us, that's all nice and wonderful. But it's not just anybody. It's God Almighty. So if we look back on our own culture in the past few months, when you look at things like Ferguson or Eric Garner or even the articles that have been written about things that may or may not have gone on in, at University of Virginia, our culture combined has cried out for justice. No matter which side you fall down on, no matter what you think, everybody's united and crying out for justice. We want truth and justice to happen. Everybody has different ideas what that would look like, but that's what we want. And it's very easy for us to want societal justice and judgment and truth. It's very difficult for us to want personal justice and judgment and truth. It's very easy to say, I want my culture and the police and the president and Congress and the military and the CIA, I want them to be transparent and I want them to be held to the morals that all of us believe in. But if all of a sudden I say, hey, I'd like you to go into a congressional meeting. I'd like your life to be on display in a grand jury. And I'd like all of your things to be displayed, the things you think the things you feel, the text messages you've sent, the emails that you've sent, the things you've done well and things you haven't done well, now it's almost like, well, I don't know if I want that much transparency. Meeting with, with one couple and not in, in our church and 
Um, the, the husband has sinned against the wife in a horrible way, and she was talking to me about it, and she was saying rightly um, how much his action was wrong, and it hurt her. And then almost in a switch, she realized, and she started saying, talking about her own addiction to alcohol, um, and the way that she was when um, she was under that addiction and her own guilt. See, what she had done is she had moved from judgment there and then all of a sudden had realized if she was going to be true in judging there and turn the light towards herself, well, I've got problems. And our God fundamentally is a God of justice and truth and judgment. He will not allow any sin to go unpunished. He will not allow any justice to not one day receive recompense and judgment and reconciliation and truth in that day that this Christ that we see born comes again to judge the world in truth. And so the question is, if he's not Savior, do you really want to be that close to him? If you're going to face him and long for him to be just as true as we cry out societally, I long for justice and judgment, I long for truth, I'll fight for it, I'll blog for it, I'll do whatever I need to do. Do you really want that truth personified as God next to you and near you, looking over your own life and your own, feel your own um, feelings and your own thoughts and everything that you've done? Well, now it gets to be a little scary. So God with us, but not as Savior, is terrifying. And we have to admit that, and that's the way that we want it to be. The second thing is that, again, it becomes uncertain, because if he hasn't definitively saved you, how do you know when God shows up if he's not going to be angry with you? I mean, how do you know which God you're going to get? I mean, you go to pray, is this merciful, loving God, or is this God that's going to tell me truthfully what I've done wrong and be angry at me? If he hasn't saved me, if there hasn't been a definitive work done, if I haven't received a salvation that I haven't earned that simply is a gift, and yet he's near to me, what God am I getting? Because he could do either. He is merciful and loving. Well, I want the merciful and loving, but I also want him to be just and true. Well, what am I going to get? Because one God I'd like to be next to, the other God I'd kind of like to dupe and hide from. You have this relationship with him that's up and down and up and down. And honestly, as it typically goes with most Christians, you impose upon God the way you're currently feeling. So for most Christians, if you're having a good day, God is very nice and loving. If you're having a bad day, God is very distant and angry. You know, it may have been the cheeseburger you had for lunch, and you're just having a bad afternoon. It may be that you had a bad dream and didn't sleep well, but you're just kind of cranky and upset the next day, but you think God, therefore, is afar off and angry. The only God that you have is your own emotions. But if there's no salvation and you want this God near you, that's how it goes. You don't know what you're getting. Is he loving and gracious? Is he just and true? Well, he's both of those things. Well, what is he right now to me? I don't know. The last thing that he is, is you have this feeling of unworthiness if God is only near to me, but not Savior, because you never know you're enough. If God in all his justice and truth and his perfect bar of righteousness comes and says, I want to be with you. Let's say he's even with you, and he's merciful and loving God. Let's just say you pick that for the day. You're having a great day. He's merciful and loving. You think that he's just gracious and awesome. Is there not even within yourself the sense of, what right do I have to be with him? Don't you feel impinging dirt and sin and think, I have no right to be with this God as wonderful and as awesome and as gracious as he is? What can I point to to know that I'm okay in his presence, that I'm enough, 
that he's not looking down his nose to me, that he's not tolerating me, that he really does want to be with me. I mean, maybe you had, you know, the situations of unrequited love in, in high school or even earlier where you liked someone and they didn't like you back. Or they liked you and um, you didn't like them back. But there's a moment of dealing with them, of wondering, are they just talking to me out of pity? Because they know I like them and they don't want to let me down easy and don't want to tell me. There's that relationship with God of I just don't feel worthy of being in his presence. It's what happened to Peter when he met Jesus in Luke 5. Jesus was helping him fish. Um, one of the signs of who he was, um, Peter was a seasoned fisherman, had come in after a night of fishing and didn't find anything. And Jesus told him to go back out. And um, Peter must have thought he was crazy. He was a carpenter teacher um, giving somebody advice about fishing, uh, a seasoned fisherman. But Peter said, all right, if you want to, I'll, I'll go and do it. And goes and puts his nets down, comes back with an amazing catch of fish. And Peter walks on shore and Peter says to Jesus, you're awesome. Would you join my fishing industry? We can make a killing. He doesn't do that at all. He falls to his knees and he says, get away from me for I am an unworthy man. What happened? Peter was in the presence of God. God was with him, but Peter couldn't see Jesus as savior. He just knew that God was there and he saw his own sin and it humbled him and he didn't know whether he was enough. Now on this side, if God is only, if Jesus is only God with us, where I would propose to you that's most expressed within our culture is within liberal Christianity, mainline liberal Christianity. Um, and so ex those expressions of Christianity um, typically say, we love God, he's with us, he's this really nice God. But they don't talk very much, if at all, about Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection. They don't talk about the faith requisite for true salvation. They don't talk about true conversion. They don't talk about a real hell and an eternal judgment. It's just God is with me. Don't talk to me about the Savior sin stuff. And you see that. And so what we see here in this passage with Matthew quoting Isaiah seemingly randomly, seemingly wrongly, his name isn't Emmanuel, it's Jesus. That's what the angel said. The angel didn't say Emmanuel. The angel said Jesus. And Matthew's saying he's both. And he has to be both. And we have to tie both of those things together. Jesus provided for you a transaction that you could not do. He earned salvation for you by fulfilling the law and dying for you and bearing the weight of God's judgment. In fancy theological words, we call it double imputation. He gave you two things. He gave you the gift of receiving righteousness and he took from you your sin. He took from you your not enoughness before God. And so that finished work that Jesus accomplished is yours by faith. It is a transaction that you have title to so Paul can write to the Ephesians and say, dear son or daughter of God, all the treasures, all the inheritance of heaven are yours. Jesus can say, listen, I don't want to stick around. If I stick around, it's no good for you. I need to go back to my father because when that happens, you will get the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit will never leave you. He will be with you. He will be your advocate and your friend. He will guide you into all truth. He will convict you of sin. He will, he will tell you that you're loved and saved. He will even, when you don't have words, help you to cry out, Abba, Father. He fundamentally convinces you he's with you. And both of those things are absolutely necessary for us to know because and this is lastly what it means for you 
what we believe the Bible teaches about personal change, about transformation. I know all of you want personal change. Like I said, it's a time of year we think about it. You're already kind of honing your New Year's resolutions. Most are thinking, you know, I'm a pretty bad person from 2014, but I could be a better person in 2015, thinking about the books you'd read and the gym memberships and all those things. What we believe about transformation, and it is not actually about white-knuckling and grabbing your bootstraps. We believe you are transformed as you see God for who he is. That's how it works. God shows you who he is in all of his glory and all of the beauty of his character in all of the terrifyingness of who he is. And in seeing him, we actually change. And so our goal is to see him as he is. But what we do when we come to this Bible is we tend to see what we want to see and not see who he is. And so I wonder this morning as we've looked at this passage from Matthew, which God do you typically see? Do you see transactional Jesus who's not with you? Or do you see with you Jesus who's not transactional? Is sin like a minor thing in the salvation you've received? Or do you not think much about God being with you or really care that God would be with you? I wonder what it looks like for you this morning to be challenged by the Christmas narrative and to grow in seeing God in the fullness of who he is. And both him being transactional and relational, both being savior and being God with you. And know as you reflect on that, that you not only receive from him that love and know that he's with you, but you begin to change. Because that's what you want to see in your relationships. How could you serve someone? How could you perform actions for someone? How can you be lovingly transactional in your relationships without fear of being just empty and exhausted all the time? can only be if you know that God gives you his strength and that you are accepted in him. So all those actions to give to the other person, you're not trying to get back from them approval. You can freely serve them. You can freely work for them. You can freely perform for them and not expect anything back from them. It's not like the Christmas card exchange program where you get the Christmas card and you're like, oh, I got to send a Christmas card to them. They weren't on my list, but they sent one to me. And so I need to send back one, one to them. You can just, you just stop doing all that because you know God has loved you. You can simply serve and love and gift people because God has so served and loved and gifted you. But then how can you be with messy people, people who have pain in their lives, people who are hard to get along with? How can you do that? How can you sit at the family meal again on, in and around Christmas or New Year's? How can you go to the work party and have to be around them? Well, you know that God has been with you. He's gracious to be with you. And in comparison to him, which of us is not you know, a mess at the work party or whatever else? If you've been so loved and invited into his fellowship and you get a glimpse of that love, how would you not be changed and want to love other people in the same way that you've been loved? You see, seeing God changes us, not just because of the way we begin to worship him in truth, but in the way it changes our relationship to other people. And that's why times like this are so dangerous Christmas and Easter are some of the most perilous times for Christians and non-Christians alike because you came to this passage thinking you knew it was already there. And the fact of the matter is, if we're going to go as Christians for the rest of our lives, the Bible has to challenge us. We have to be able to disagree with it. If you don't disagree with anything in the Bible, you're not reading it. And God wins. He's sovereign. He's authoritative. But you should come to parts and be like, I just don't like that. I don't. 
Because that's God pressing on that area of your life and saying, I know you don't, but it's the truth, and I love you, and let's work on that. Let's deal with that. I know you'd rather me be transactional and nowhere near you because you're really uncomfortable with me being near you. Let's work on that. I know you're fine with me being near you, but you really don't like confessing your sins because you actually think you're a pretty good person. Let's work on that because there's grace there to see. There's more of me to see. There's more of the ways that that gospel will change you to love other people. Let's work on that. And so I encourage you with all of your might, whether you're a Christian or not a Christian, to come to Christmas time, the incarnation, and hear it again. Be amazed with this God who is in the old terms awful. That word used to mean full of awe. And what it came to mean was that if some, something so full of awe like God might actually be awful and terrifying. And so we want God to be awful. We want him to be full of awe. We want to see him so much that he's even challenging to us and challenges things that we believe about him and our lives around you. This is the Christ that was born in a manger, the Jesus Emmanuel. Why don't I pray for us and we can sing about him. Heavenly Father, um, we love you. You have given to us this Jesus. This Christ is both Emmanuel and our 